0: Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and on today's episode, we're talking to the founder of Wisdom 2.0, Soren Gordhammer. It's our first show of 2023, and there is certainly no shortage of topics for us to tackle here in the lab as we enter our third year. Go us. Uh, Dearest listener, in the few short months since we last met, a lot has gone down. Public opinion on AI has gotten uh, complicated. Uh, New groundbreaking technologies have sprung forth. The metaverse still really isn't much of a thing yet. Uh, Twitter is also complicated. And science, here's some good news, may have finally answered one of the most important questions ever asked. Uh, are dogs left or right-handed just like us? Uh, if I get my way, that last one's gonna get a three-episode arc here on The Feelings Lab. You better believe it. Uh, anyway, when we were fortunate enough to land today's guest, the team got together, as we like to do, to figure out an appropriate topic. Should we talk about the relationship between mindfulness and, and current technology? Sure, obvious one, of course. Should we deep dive into the role AI may play in our ability to truly know oneself? Of course, let's, let's get into that. Uh, what about taking a closer look to see If social media has actually brought us together or driven us farther apart if there's time great why not Uh, ultimately we want to ask all of these questions and a bunch more so why limit ourselves with a single topic right uh let's go ahead and leave the door wide open Uh, And who better to casually stroll through that door with us than today's guest. He has a wealth of experience in not just practicing mindfulness, of course, but in coaching others and helping them on their journey to find balance between their inner, outer selves and technology. He's built incredible communities from scratch, uh, worked with individuals of all ages and economic backgrounds. In fact, his work has afforded him a front row seat to observe and discuss the things that occupy the minds of everybody from those in juvenile hall to some of the world's most wealthy CEOs and execs. Uh, Pretty remarkable stuff. Now. I think it, it's fair to say everyone out there has you know, intrusive thoughts or trauma or fears or anxieties or something that we're working with. And uh, our phones tend to provide one of the most effective distractions man's ever created. But though that particular experience feels universal, what about the actual thoughts themselves? Are we all running from the same things? Uh, are we all running? You know, As we now feel more divided than ever, are there things we're all quietly fighting inside that we don't even realize may actually unify us all? A lot of big questions, and to be clear, our guest has never once claimed to have all the answers. In fact, I would like to consider them a bit of a kindred spirit, not only in their willingness to let you know that we don't know, but also our shared enthusiasm for learning and finding things out together. Uh, that's why we're all here, not just on the show, but in general, I think that's why we're all here, to learn and, and figure things out together. Uh, I'm very apparently so wildly excited to dig into what they've picked up along their incredible journey. But first, speaking of incredible journeys, My co-host and friend, Dr. Alan Cowan, has traversed the choppy, unforgiving waters of the fundraising seas, and I'm happy to report that he and his fearless crew have returned victorious. Uh, Typically, I congratulate him for just having good hair. But today, I say, well done, sir, congrats. On the reason series a announcement alan that's huge news for hume ai and an awfully big feather in the cap welcome back to the lab how are you doing man i got to imagine things are pretty good over there right now
1: appreciate it yeah no it's been great we're growing soren had something to do with that <laughs> Most of participated yep. <laughs> so yeah it's been great
0: oh uh, it's fantastic i'm happy to hear it all right let's do this today's guest first and foremost uh, full disclosure as may have been alluded to just there is an investor in hume ai but that's far from why we've asked them to join us here today uh he's been featured in various media including GQ Magazine, Newsweek.com, a former project director for Richard Gere's public charity, Healing the Divide. Uh, They've organized the Healing Through Great Difficulty Conference with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. That's pretty cool. Uh, Over a decade ago, he wrote a book, Wisdom 2.0, addressing the great challenge of our age to not only live connected to one another through technology, but to do so in ways that are beneficial to our own well-being. Well, that book would later evolve into a wildly successful series of conferences, meetups, and workshops, bringing the conversation to the world in an accessible, innovative, and inclusive way, with their annual flagship event drawing massive crowds, thousands of guests from over 24 countries all over the world. Uh, And over the years, they have done mountains of work with individuals and groups On ways to live with less stress and more effectiveness in our technology rich lives. And on a podcast about emotions and technology, man, I dare you. Go find a better guest. You won't. Please welcome to the show, founder of Wisdom 2.0, the great Soren Gordhammer is here with us. Soren, what a treat. Thank you so much for being here. I do want to do as podcasts typically do at the beginning and go a little bit back in time. I've listened to a ton of the stuff that you've done out there, Soren, so I'm a little familiar with your story and I think it's phenomenal. Uh, and, and if if you will indulge, I just want to go back and talk a little bit about the, the early start of your journey. And I mean like way back, uh, you know, we go all the way to when you were a little kid. It starts in kind of a difficult place. You come from a big family at an early age. You guys move out to Lubbock, Texas. Uh, your parents split and divorce. And then uh, I've heard you say how you felt alienated at school. You, you swore off dating and socializing. Things got really challenging, really dark. And then your father, in an attempt to sort of provide you some tools, I suppose, One day he leaves you uh, books. He leaves you a pile of books, Ramdas, things of this nature by your door. And that's a real pivotal moment for you, right? Receiving that pile of literature. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. You know, I think the two things that were outside my door were
2: sex anatomy books and uh, spiritual books. I think it was the two things he was really all you need. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Listening
2: all the time, that pretty much answered all my problems. Um, he left the books outside my dorm and hoped that I would pick them up, and he wouldn't have a talk. He wouldn't have to talk to me about how sex works <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he wouldn't have to talk to me necessarily about kind of what my own pain was. and he could yeah. kind of reach me in a more subtle way because I was very lonely and isolated. And I didn't want to talk to anybody. And I felt a lot of shame at the time. Um our family was one that did not go to church and just about like ninety nine percent of everybody else in Texas at the time. and that sounded like the church yeah. did go to church. So mm-hmm. when uh, the divorce happened, I felt like it was kind of a uh, indication that somehow we were wrong. There's was something was wrong with our family, and you know, kids would tell us, "Oh, you're going to hell, and you're not going to church." And so, there's a lot of confusion growing up about what in the hell is religion and what is spirituality. So, the beautiful aspect of that was I was kind of thrust into knowing or to exploring like what really matters and what yeah. is what is truth and what is spirituality from a different, from a young age, because it was kind of thrust upon me. And I think when, when I went through that pain, you know, I used to play athletics. I just loved to win and just putting the ball to the hoop or the, or this soccer kick. I just loved it. And then when that, that grief happened, that pain happened, it no longer felt as satisfying to win the basketball game or to win the soccer game. Like everything kind of took on a different context. And I realized looking back, like, oh, that was like an introduction to kind of like a spiritual orientation where all the things that the society kind of like saw as important or I saw as important actually no longer fed me in a way. So I had to then go and explore like, all right, what do I do with this pain in my heart? And then Buddhism had this word suffering, dukkha, and I was like, oh, shit, I think that's what I'm... I think that's what I'm feeling. And teachers like Ram Dass and others, I'd listen to their tapes and read their books. So I, saw, I was kind of being introduced into, oh, there's this thing called compassion, It's there's suffering, but there's also this other way of meeting suffering that actually breeds compassion. And so that became kind of like the door that I began to explore. Uh, and and how do I actually foster that and live with that? And it's not about necessarily getting rid of the pain per se or the, or the traumatic experience. It's about relating to it in a different way that actually builds empathy. And, yeah, know, I'm a parent, I'm a 20 year old. And I notice myself, like, I don't want him to go through difficulty or pain. And yet I know that that's often what builds compassion, right? Imagine a child who never suffers, like how are they supposed to learn empathy and compassion? So there's some kind of balance there between providing a context for our people to go through suffering, but not to stay in suffering and does that suffering, can that suffering expand into empathy and compassion?
0: One of the things that was super interesting that I heard you say is describing it in terms of thrusted into this world. Because well, the way I was interpreting it and I was way off, I guess I was seeing it through your dad's eyes of like, he he acknowledges you're having this tough time. You're clearly struggling. He wants to reach you, but he's not sitting you down and having a stern talking to. He's not threatening. He's not doing anything. He's, I'm not going to uh, say, I'm going to send you away if you cancel it. No, he just, he just left a pile of books outside the yeah. door and he yeah. just kind of nudged you. And I, I had interpreted that action uh, as sort of him kind of just trusting that that was yeah. enough, right? Yeah, that yeah. he knows this is a lot, but he trusts just making this available, yeah. Soren will find his way, hopefully. Yeah. And and I think that's like a gutsy move to not get more involved yeah. in, when your son's having such a hard time. And I, it's interesting to hear you phrase it as thrusted, but I think he meant it in a slightly different context. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Life was
2: pushing me in a direction that right, was in right. the old world that I was living in, where certain things mattered. And now in this new world, a different thing mattered. And Rambas heard this beautiful quote, and I'm not going to get it perfectly right, but he said, you know, his job isn't to tell people what to do or to or to push them in a direction. It's to provide a container that if they do want to awaken or see something, there's nothing in him that's deterring them from that experience. So how yeah. to create containers that are optimum for growth without telling people, grow, you know, mature, or like, like do this action. But there's a container that we can create with our friends, our family, our loved ones, that kind of creates a more conducive learning environment by asking the right questions, by putting the right books out. But I do think you're right. I think that there's a spacious... It's like the yin and yang. You need to have thrown some push forward, but if you push too hard forward, you get resistance. But if you don't do any... So there's a, there's a dance with that that I... I your,
0: your dad, he was a um, uh, professor of psychology... Forgive me, I the here, specific. He was a professor
2: of psychology at the local university uh, in Lubbock, Texas, Texas Tech. Yeah, wonderful human I, being. He's still around. He's 82 and just... Dear good for him. Pain.
0: I wonder if you... Have you ever talked... Was he... Do you, was that intentional on his part? Was he aware of the world kind of pushing you in one direction? Maybe that's why he took that approach? Because he seems like a dude that would be really dialed into that if that's like Probably, his... Oh, that would be
2: my man. Yeah, think she, yeah. he felt like he was... his job was to kind of offer us a direction in kind of the spiritual world. And because yeah. we weren't going to church, he wanted to introduce us. So I remember there was this one time we had this uh, woman, cool. colleague of his come over and give us a talk on saints <laughs> and the kids. And there was a ramana Maharshi and all these kind of amazing saints, and she gave a talk on saints. And he would kind of quote different teachers to us. And I think he was trying I... to provide his own version of a, some kind of spiritual yeah. spirituality that uh we, you know, didn't
0: have within the cultural framework. Amazing. Um, real quick, Ellen, I, I don't know that I've ever Do you have a books by the door story? Do you have like a moment that you can pinpoint that set you kind of in the direction that you headed in? Do you remember anything like that from when you were little or something that said, this is, that sparked it all for you?
1: I did actually, now that you mention it, there was, um, my dad gave me a lot of philosophy books. Really? (laughs) Uh, And I literally, I literally read this, well, I had this mini version of Plato's Republic. It's like oh, tiny man. little book that you could carry around. And I literally read that. I didn't know it was just supposed to be like a kind of gimmicky thing. <laughs> Alan I was five, really... <laughs> by the way, listeners. This is <laughs> when Alan was five. Uh, he... I, was, I was in third grade. Uh oh. <laughs> that's wow. totally
0: young for that to happen.
1: But I think the reason that I was drawn to that was that um I was in a Jewish school. Yeah. and I decided very early on. Well, what happened was like in second or third grade, I I was told that Jews were not like the majority of the world. Most people were not Jewish. And I was like, wait a second. Everybody actually's <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> yeah, like if, if that's true, then how come like I'm only learning this one perspective, right? Um and so that Man. sort of got me thinking a little more deeply pretty early on and
0: <laughs> what a wise little third grader you are
1: i, I was, I was just angry yeah. that the
0: third ninja turtles movie didn't live up to my expectations <laughs> that's what i think i was doing in third grade That's amazing
1: yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> there, was there, there was some in- of
2: that too <laughs> when you decided to kind of like the technology was fascinated but you wanted to put this empathy side to it or you wanted
1: to kind of do a kind of human betterment side to it was there a moment where you're like huh that came way later. So um, when I was in fourth grade,
0: that was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, it was uh, during my PhD when I was working with Docker, and we started consulting with companies because they were reaching out to us, thinking, you know, saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, we're you're publishing on human expression. We want to do that. We want to build technology that sort of understands people a little better." And um, working with the people at these tech companies who were interested in that, most of them. Uh, had a very, um, had really good intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of them um, wanted to build technology that understood people's well-being and could optimize for people's well-being. Literally, there was a well-being team. There was yeah. the protecting care team. Yeah. Um, things have sort of gotten reorganized, but it was there was an active engagement with the fact that the technology of the day was optimized for engagement in many ways that were almost exclusively explicitly antithetical to mindfulness, like pull us in, make us distracted, make us forget why we opened the app in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we, you know, try to get us to stay in the app. Um, and so, you know, that's where I was drawn into how do we, how do we apply what we know in psychology to prevent this, even though this is kind of the default for technology, if you're just going to optimize for the signal that you have, which is people using the technology seemingly, that's the right signal yeah. to optimize for because you're building a technology yeah. and you want people to use it. Yeah, it has this negative consequence, yeah. um, and so that's where I realized that psychology had a big role to play in the development of AI. Cool, interesting, wow. super interesting.
0: Yeah, um, thank you both of you for uh, sharing those stories and letting us uh, in and letting us hear a little bit about your past and, and what that was like. I appreciate that. Let's let's keep uh, let's keep moving down the timeline for you, Soren. I want to flash forward now. A lot. It's uh, 2008, nine ish. And you write wisdom 2.0 the book this yeah. is your sort of first attempt i think to, that i can tell to reconcile on paper uh yeah. the ancient ideas that you've been uh you know reading about pursuing and practicing and then uh, uh of course what you observed at the time as this increasingly invasive digital lifestyle yeah. uh and I so you know put the book together. where we were going at the time but yeah it seemed increasingly <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, that's just it, right? Is um, it's so amazing that you 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 get onto this track in in oh eight oh nine, which yeah. it doesn't sound like that long ago, but it really is. It's another planet, um, and you know, there's a bunch of questions I want to ask. But since we're here with it now, at that time, what were some of the red flags that you were seeing that said to you, shine a light on this? Let's start a conversation now. This is. This is big or this is going to be big. Never mind now, I, the fact that you couldn't predict it's it. a you know? great
2: question. I just, I think some of it was instincts at the time. I was kind of seeing the trend in me and noticing the trend in other people. And I was trying From, to kind of decipher or see if I can put together these two really strong interests I had. One was like in the power of technology and seeing how it opened up channels of communication and channels of information that you cannot deny. I mean, the fact that you can now have access to all these videos and all these websites and all these apps like this, this incredible information now at our fingertips. And if somebody who grew up in a small town in West Texas, like if I had the internet, like, wow, I could learn so much. Right. So there's that part of technology that I love, but then I also loved like silence and being in nature and being in quiet and like understanding myself. And I would be kind of with my kind of spiritual friends that would be in this domain or be with my tech friends. But I was like, there must be a group of people who's interested in both, but I can't really find them. But, you know, there must be some people who are interested in the intersection of those two. And I think I, I just sensed at the time that there was no doubt that the external technologies of our age were going to get faster and cooler and niftier and more amazing. And that what was uncertain, it was kind of like the real question of our time would be whether the internal technologies of compassion, wisdom, mindfulness, uh-huh. would those grow as this grew or would th- as this grew, would this kind of stifle this? Yeah. I, I really felt like that's, you know, compassion is kind of the glue that keeps a culture together. And all this billions of dollars are going into how to cr- increase this. And this is getting less and less attention. And so I felt just very compelled to do my part to see if we could lift up this. But it was really important for me to not to do it in a divisive way. So when we did our yeah. first conferences, we invited, you know, the CEOs of Twitter and Facebook and whatever companies because we're like join the conversation with us this isn't about like drop out tune out you know get rid of this but there's a danger and the algorithms are kind of set up uh, to kind of create more and more uh, engagement as you said yeah. out. and that can have some positive benefits but also has some really negative benefits and who's looking out for that other side like who's looking out for our well-being know like Netflix I think gives like four seconds before one video ends before it auto plays because they don't they don't like it appears anyways uh, not to trash Netflix it appears anyway that the the us thinking about how to best spend the next hour it's like it's like the challenge that they're trying to solve. Like we don't want this person thinking what they how best to spend the next hour. Maybe they need to go for a walk, maybe they need to have some tea, maybe they do some yoga. So it's like there's there's more and less and less time built into technology to actually stop yeah. for a moment and be contemplative, connect with our body, connect with our heart, connect with other people. And um, it's nothing against Netflix per se. It's just a trend of technology, right? It's like you don't want to lose the attention, so you keep fostering that attention forward. And so I felt like, well, well, the question is not to push that away and and like tell that that they're wrong. So we have to become more and more conscious. We have to build our own inner strength to be able to manage this in a way that actually serves us so we can actually sleep at night and we can actually have a conversation across the table with somebody and our kids can like know how to like share their feelings with us. And anyway, so I feel very, which I still do, I feel very passionate about the need for this other dimension so that the incredible, incredible power of technology is used in a way that hopefully is of service. And um, yeah. we ventures that Alan had mentioned earlier is a small venture capital company that a number of us created so that we could, you know, support and fund and invest in companies that kind of shine a light in that direction. And part of our is the same inspiration where like there's like gazillions of <laughs> venture capital companies that anything addictive that like has a high return, you know, they're like, cool, we're in. And there were there aren't as many and that's starting to change. The more and more yeah. are moving in direction, but there were nearly as much that says, you know what matters to us is that we create a world that my children, and my grandchildren can enjoy. And we want to fund companies and support companies that have that as their goal and make a profit. And we have to figure out a way to do that. There's just no other way. Like people's like, oh, that's not possible. I'm like, it has to be possible or we're screwed. Like like yeah. there's, there's companies that we can do this. We can make a decent profit and we can be of service in a way. And, um, and that's kind of been a lot of my life. It's been trying yeah. to you know, tackle that in a way. You know, it's not like the 60s and the 60s. I think people were like, oh, if you're this way or you're that way, you're not a part of the movement. I'm like, everyone's a part of the movement. Like, we're all on the same boat. We're all on Spaceship Earth. And we're all, like, trying to figure stuff out. We all bring talents to the talents to the thing. And, and uh, but if you look at the loneliness in our culture right now, the levels of loneliness, level of, like, people who need medicine, pills to go to sleep every night, who can't really focus on anything for very long. Um, there's a lot of children, mental health. There's a lot of signals that um, there's an imbalance, yeah, and um, the longing I think for people to find a way to learn how to sit silently with themselves and harness kind of an inner strength and inner power so they know how to engage more thoughtfully.
0: And I want to I want to tap into that little bit right there, harnessing your inner strength, the inner power. And one, God, I love listening to you talk, man. The enthusiasm and the passion. And it speaks to the point that I'm about to bring up. This was an important life or death, man. You saw the writing on the wall and you felt compelled. This is the mission. This is what we have to do. You put everything into this book, right? And then the book comes out. And in your words, crickets. how did it... Pr- it crickets. Crickets. <laughs> crickets. Cricket. And I I was reminded of like the, the, the climate scientists in the 80s and 90s screaming on, they're for they're us they're to good. listen, like, hey. please pay attention to this. And it's like, that had to sting, right? That is, you worked so hard. This was so important. This was a, a social, a societal imperative. And yeah. then it comes out and crickets. And I think... You know, and I'm not, well, I'm not salt in the wound. There's something really important here I want to get to in your experience there. I
2: may be out of my time. We may never know.
0: (laughs) Well, I I would think so. I think ahead of your time, but also that moment. I want to talk about your emotions in that moment when something like that happens. You know, It's impossible to see then and there yeah. how that step may be necessary, yeah. how that's yeah. part of it, right? Yeah. I don't know a way to reduce the sting of yeah. something like that as it's happening. But I want to know, as we talk about people developing the inner strength and learning the tools, did you allow yourself to sit in that for a minute or did you keep pushing? Like, okay, the book didn't work. What else can we do? How how did you navigate that moment, those crickets? You know, I think
2: anybody who, who works on a project for years, like a book is, lives in a little bit of a delusion because it, it needs to help them motivate. Entrepreneurs too. There's a certain level of delusion that's like pushing you forward, right? This is gonna be amazing. Oprah's gonna love this and things are good. Like there's a little bit of delusion in in a lot of cases anyways, and definitely in my case, that's pushing forward that you think that oh, this is just gonna be so well received so instantly. And so there was definitely a certain level of disappointment at a certain level of frustration and a certain level like, shit, was I, I thought like it felt like, was I, am I yeah. off? Am I misreading what I'm supposed to do? And I think I kind of had some months of really looking into that. And the answer I got when I tuned in was like, no, this is, this was like your business card to get you into the room. So when I went and talked to people, the fact that I'd written a book really, really mattered. It showed it, it wasn't an idea I got yesterday. I was yeah. committed to the cause. I had a book that they could read. Like, it felt like it was a, it was really like a business card to kind of go into what, what, what came into a conference. And so I look back at it now. I was like, oh, I thought I was writing a book to kind of reach millions of people. It turns out I was writing a book for a whole different purpose. And, and, you know, the beauty of that is I think had that gone differently, I might've gotten a little more egoic and thinking I had the answers and thinking like, oh, everyone loves me. And I just need to be talking to everybody. And this kind of forced me or invited me to form a community around it right to bring other people in to bring other voices in and i think that's kind of what the world needed it, it didn't need like a, somebody who had the answers it needed a community and so i hope that i've been able to follow that but um but i i look back at that i'm really glad that that unfolded i wasn't at the time necessarily but i can see the yeah. wisdom of that um because now there's such a strong community of people who care about this and I don't know if that would have happened if it would have been you know just a, a book with me as the author and me sharing my opinion and my views like I think it would have been limited
0: yeah wow fascinating to hear that that's also that's another well obviously it's a pivotal moment for you it leads to the kind of the evolution of that becomes the wisdom 2.0 conferences and all that but just also to that that's the moment where you learned um to to ha- put like the, let the ego take a back seat or at least that's the moment we started to yeah. figure out the community is key here and, and sort of learning from that which yeah, makes sense because a book try- can be an isolating experience you're, you're working on your own when you're doing the book and now it's like i need I need, it takes a village now yeah when you thing. try
2: to fight life it's really yeah. hard <laughs> this shouldn't be happening there's a mistake the publisher's wrong yeah. The time, whatever versus just like wow this is happening it's yeah. not what I thought was happening. This is what's happening. What is the teaching that I can take from this and continue to move forward yeah. versus get stuck in blame and shame and, and and that kind of energetics? And I think we all get invited into that almost every day. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's an yeah. argument with our partner. Like, why is our partner acting this stupid whatever And versus like, OK, maybe there's a reason he or she or they are acting that way. Maybe I get curious about them. Like, honey, could you tell me a little bit more about what's going on with you? Versus, the, versus condemning them for having whatever experience or judging them. It's just like trying to invite and I try to really spend my life as much as I can. Of course, I resist certain things at times, but as much as I can, seeing things that are emergent and be like, oh, there's, there's intelligence here, right? There's yeah. something here. And I've tried to do that with technology and the things that are emergent in our world. Like there's an intelligence here. There's a reason that AI is now kind of having some of its need and attention directed to it. There's something that we can learn from here. And so uh, what does it mean to kind of engage that in a thoughtful way? But I, I feel like going with life instead of fighting life as best we can is is the way to go.
1: Yeah. Uh- couldn't agree more. Alan, did you about to say something to cut you off? Yeah, no, that seems totally in line with how a lot of startups have pivoted to AI recently, but a lot of them did something completely different before. So I they mean, spent like years launching a product, right? And then yeah. uh, AI comes along and they're like, well, we can actually build something completely different with this, but we have the right team at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. that's the experience a lot of startups seems to have.
2: I do think that from what I've noticed, and I don't know if you've noticed this now, like life just kind of it can easily beat you down. If you don't really love something, if you kind of in it for the wrong reasons, eventually, eventually everything becomes every everything becomes seen. You might be able to hide something for a while, but eventually everything becomes seen. And my hope is that the people who really, really care about a topic, that's a different level of motivation than the person who wants a quick exit or who wants the notoriety or fame. Um, and I'm, I see more and more people who are coming forward, who of course they would love a great return, but they're also really committed to a cause. And, um, that's what that's, that always excites me, inspires me.
1: Well, it's really cool because right now you can optimize technology for something else. What AI is showing us is you can you have levers that you can pull that aren't just like getting people to use the product more. You know, that's like tra- the traditional metric because right, yeah. you can measure more. You can you can literally have a product that talks to people and asks them what they want. So it's a, right. it's a different world, and and those different possibilities um, really open up the possibility of being more kind of mission driven and more okay. um, focused on the. How you're affecting people with your technology and able to measure that and optimize for it, which is what we're focused on. So yeah, have you guys
2: yeah, it's, go ahead, sorry.
1: No, no, it's I, I mean, have finished. you had a podcast
2: since ChatGPT came out and how are you seeing the movement? All the it feels like everyone kind of like AI was kind of like over here, over here, and that was like everyone's <laughs> turned over. Wow, look at them. Like it's kind yeah. of all attention. <laughs> I think Google's. Uh, market cap went down what hundred billion dollars cause their chat box didn't before chat, uh, <laughs> AI didn't work so well or made a mistake. So there's, it's like it, there's a really interesting shift in that direction. I don't know, just know if you have thoughts on that or whether that's something that, uh, it's kind of inevitable in any process.
1: Well, it's a really fascinating time. I mean, things have been, like technology has passed the Turing test, right? Well, and people notice that, and we don't talk about it explicitly, but that's really what happens. Suddenly you can talk to something and it really understands yeah. you. And that's just a whole different way of experiencing technology. And as soon as you experience it, you want way more of it. You're like, okay. give me more of this. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and the problem is it still has some flaws. Um, and I think we can get a little bit overexcited about it. You know, the, For example, I think with Google, um, they've been focused on the back end but they well, they've been integrating ai into it for many years yeah. right and a lot of it's very similar but it's really just driving back ends and the front end looks the same to you mm-hmm. it feels better you don't yeah. realize how much better it feels like if you went back to like 2010 google it would feel like it wasn't working very well yeah. <laughs> um but, uh, you know, so people get excited about the chat GBT stuff and then they're like, well, why isn't Search a little bit more like this? But what you forget is that you actually want to hear from humans most of the time mm-hmm. and you want to see real images and not and not artificial images most of the time. Uh, yeah. Um, and so I, I do think that there's a place for. Uh, a search bar that doesn't have a chat GPT in it. Yeah, got it. (laughs) Alan,
0: can you elaborate on what you mean by you
1: want to see real images and you want to see a human sometimes? What do you mean by that? Well, when you're hearing from an AI, um, there's no expertise behind it and you don't know it? who it is. Right. And, and so it's like this misrepresentation of potentially of of, of, of what a human really is. Uh, and, and so you don't you don't really inherently trust it. Most of the time when you're looking for information, you want to know something about where that information is coming from. Uh-huh. Um, and. You know, ChatGPT is just not that. Even if it were referenced, um, what actually, what actually is most exciting about how this technology can change search, is not really changing the interface. changing things like the meta descriptions on search results so that they're much more accurate as to referring to what the the page really says and, (laughs) and and how it directly answers your question so you could have a meta description that's like this is the answer to the question that you have on this page and this is the paraphrasing of it like that's a really cool thing where you wouldn't even need to change the interface really at all um and i think that you know the They're they're excited. They're capitalizing on the Microsoft is capitalizing on the the excitement for good reason of JotGPT. But the way they've changed the interface is they've just added another thing that is unrelated to the search bar. And I don't think ultimately that's what people want. They want everything to be in the search bar. They don't want to be like searching and then have to go through some other chat interface to get other kinds of information. It's it's just kind of unintuitive. Yeah. and Google's known this for a long time, that people like this really simple interface with just one thing that you just type something in, press enter, and you don't have to ask yourself how to use this tool. And so I think that's going to persist And that, you know, I don't think it's going to turn Google upside down or anything like that. Yeah. But that's just my opinion. I think, I think what's really cool, though, about ChatGPT is um, you can you can actually get it to act like Uh any kind of expert that you want. You can literally make it into your personal sage, right? Uh Um, (laughs) And I think that the opportunity there is probably not in search, but in some other interface that's more similar to digital assistants. Mm -hmm. Um, And Uh I think it's going to talk to you um, and it should talk to you and act like a person. Um, And that's where it's going to see a lot of uh, success and could potentially change technology.
2: So without revealing too much, uh, ha, ha, has Human shifted at all, or how do you see yourself in the next years engaging in areas or not in certain areas? Do you have a sense of like that 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 direction that kind of like is your north star, and and you'll kind of be guided by that as as so many different opportunities appear?
1: Yeah, I totally. I think that the generative AI interfaces. Really change what you can build, and we want to add to that and make what we're building totally complementary to that. Um, and what's really exciting is uh, that, well, two things. One, we can build something that talks and understands people, mm. and uh, and that's that can use ChatGPT. They can use other large language models, whatever comes out. Oh. Um, and so we're not trying to rebuild the wheel, but the fact that you have access to that as a tool is incredibly important. Yeah. And the second thing is that the way that ChatGPT is developed is sort of with a pseudo psychology experiment, right? <laughs> um, and they, that has so much room for improvement, which is reinforcement learning from human feedback. So basically oh. they get people to rate a bunch of GPT-3 responses or say this one's better than that one. And then they reinforce, they use the reinforcement learning uh-huh. to fine tune GPT, GPT three with those responses. And that's how you get chat GPT, uh-huh. but the ratings are a kind of crude psychological measure. <laughs> you can do so much better than that. And so it gives us the opportunity to step in and say, this is a, a better measure to use is uh-huh. potentially that, you know, people's ratings, but also what they're expressing. And, right. and, and multiple dimensions of that. Yeah. Um, and have it learn passively from every user, not just yes. the set of raiders who you've you've hired. Right. And so there's so much opportunity yeah. there to improve the way that ChatGPT works and not just that, but a, a model for how all AI can learn uh-huh. and be reinforced and fine-tuned. So ChatGPT is just an interface and you get people's responses but you could do the same thing with anything that has that's undergirded by an AI model that can learn from people's responses and that we're measuring uh, so it's a huge opportunity for us I think and um, and a way to really accomplish our mission that we've had from day one and there's no visual or auditory in
2: that dimension James.
1: there's no auditory dimension to ChatGPT it's just a chat interface but it should it shouldn't be just a chat interface. Yes. Um, yeah. I think people want to talk to something mm-hmm. um, and they want it to be able to speak back to them. Like it's a human and not like, it doesn't want it. They don't want something that sounds like Alexa. Like if you just hooked it up to Alexa, nobody would use it. Right. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> it sounds so frustrating yeah. to yeah. interact with, but imagine if it actually sounded like a human. And on top of that, it did the things that humans do, which is, you know, kind of picked up your tone of voice and, and understood feedback uh, that you were delivering through not explicitly, but through your tone of voice, and not actually having to say that was a bad answer, yeah. Um, and adjusting the the way that it responded the next time, and integrating that, and becoming a personalized model yeah. for yourself, like that. That's the big opportunity, I think. Yeah, cool. science fiction has promised us this for years. Uh, yes, Kit The talking
0: been. car, Jarvis from Iron Man. Then <laughs> there are countless examples. Ball. How many years, Alan, ballpark, you think, until such a thing uh, starts making its way to mainstream? How far out do you think we are?
1: For the digital assistant world, which can just build on chat GPT plus a voice interface, yeah. plus what we're building right now at Hume, I yeah. think that that's literally less than a year away. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There's already really yeah. cool text-to-voice stuff coming for out, sure. but the, the text-to-speech and text-to-voice technology is built in a very similar way to uh, GPT-3, where it's not optimized for... Your experiences—it's just optimized to sound realistic, and that's (laughs) step Uh one. But then you can build it in a way that ChatGPT is built, where it's actually optimized for your experience, how you respond to something, and then you could have a chat interface that speaks and speaks in a way that actually is meant to. sound friendlier and sound better and create more and and make sure it understands you and be optimized for all of these things um which is the next step the next generation but but all of that is is based on technology that is either available today or just months away just needs to be put together
2: we We would need to give access to the camera or else have some kind of robot entity right because if you're if you're working with visuals at least
1: yeah, I, I think most of the interfaces are going to just be auditory. Okay. Um, especially at first, unless you're talking about a mental health context okay. where you have telehealth sessions mm-hmm. and the person can consent to this, mm-hmm. this data being used, and and your face is already a big indicator of sort of what's wrong, what's right in your life to the doctor. Um, so so the, the, these sorts of uh, specific use cases, but I think the bigger one is uh, digital assistance and things that just respond to voice commands and and making them more conversational. I think the voice is much richer than language yeah. um, is what we're finding. So now, it's interesting because I, uh, a little bit of a sidebar, but you know, when uh,
2: TikTok started becoming more and more popular, I was just curious about it. So like went there. And my first impression was like, wow, it's so interesting. The algorithm is the default. And I'd never actually seen that before in a social network. The algorithm is the default. And that I didn't seem to need to tell it. I didn't need to like anything. It just knew by how long I was watching something, whether I liked it, whether to feed that back to me again. <laughs> and <laughs> order if I did some action. And I was like, oh, the algorithm, and I don't know if you guys have different views of it, but they're they're one upping. Instagram, these other places that you go follow and you like and you do all these comments like it's like, oh, that's the data source to determine what we should kind of give you versus like I just live my life and I do this in two seconds or five seconds and they have all the data they need to know (laughs) where that should go. and There's positive and negative things for sure. But it was it was kind of an insight for me of like, wow, this is a different level of algorithmic um, direction than what I got like was before where there was these likes and comments
1: and follows. It's scary a little bit because it's such a one-dimensional view of your behavior that it's mm-hmm. optimizing for. Yeah, and that's the beauty of TikTok. It keeps you on one video at a time, so it knows that the longer you dwell on that video, the longer you're watching it. That's how it, it's so information-rich. The signal that they yeah. have, and you, from just watching a thousand videos on TikTok, suddenly they have a, a, a picture of like what is it that you like dwelling cool. on? Basically, what are the kind of voices that you like? Mm-hmm. What, what are the things you're like you looking at? not in the algorithm. <laughs> <in> <laughs> <in the, laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, But how you respond, how, whether you're happy yeah. or not at the end of the, watching it for two hours or four hours or, you know, yeah. kids these days, many of them watching it for six hours a day. There's nothing in the algorithm that tells you whether that's good for the person. Right? Yeah, That's 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 the scary thing. Um, and so that's why we need more multidimensional signals. Well, I was going
0: to say is how do we because right now there's nothing in there that tells them that because and this is the part where I've told I'm cynical, but because uh, that doesn't make them extra money. They don't need, they're not incentivized to do that, right? So how do we incentivize them beyond it would be objectively better for humanity? I'm not saying how do we monetize it, but what? how do we find a path towards that? Because that is a necessary piece that is missing. And we are starting to see the repercussions right. of that. And so it's like, how do you solve for that problem?
1: So I think that there is, (laughs) (laughs) you're right that there is a business incentive in the short term to get people to just stay on the app longer because that's how they make money is the longer you stay on the app, the more ads you see, the more ads you see, the more money they get from their ad partners. Right. And uh, that's in the short term though. And then you, in the long term, there's only a limited number of hours in the day. Um, and so you have uh, companies competing for attention. And uh, if if everyone just uses that model of like, let's try to steal attention away from the other apps to the degree possible, then we're gonna run out of hours to do other things in the day. Um, and that's already sort of happening with kids. Like you already have kids spending six hours a day on average on social media. And then there's, kind of, there, there's a societal response. There's a response from parents, there's a response from legislators. And it's negative, <laughs> and, oh. right? To say the least. Um, and so how how are these apps going to survive in a Ew. regulatory environment? Yeah. And then how are they going to survive when parents want to take it away from their kids? How are they, you know, how are they going to survive when kids are having mental health issues and the solution is you have to get off the app. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, um, I think ultimately their business interests will be aligned with, sure, you can try to optimize for people spending time on the app, but make sure it's quality time. And that they're better off afterward than they would have otherwise been. Yeah, what do you think about If you have go, sorry. If you have that as your business model, then then that avoids a lot of those issues long term. What do you think yeah.
2: about partnering with a wearable that actually takes other readings, whether it's heart rate variability or galvanic skin response, like a double activity, like different things that might help actually determine um what the relationship is in that moment with a certain technology, or do you feel like you can actually get that through other means versus a wearable that gives other data in terms of kind of what level of stress they might be experiencing a given day?
1: There's a place for wearables. It doesn't really tell you about stress though, because remember the wearable is picking up on things like heart rate and respiration and galvanic skin response, and all of these can be good or bad. Uh-huh. Um, they're, we consider it stress when it's negative, but the same physiological signals can resemble something positive when it's excitement. Um, so or or flow or you know the, the body responding in a beneficial way to challenges that you feel better when you right. when you have those challenges and when you meet them. So I, I, I think that the physiological signals are kind of one dimensional right now.
2: It would seem and, though that if I'm experiencing stress or I'm experiencing happiness, my body must be communicating that I'm doing one or the other. And there must be some way to determine that and maybe just the wearables aren't as developed yet or the technology is not developed yet but it would seem to me that uh, that their body would have different indicators and that there would be a way of assessing that which indicator they wouldn't be my body wouldn't be indicating the same thing that i'm scared shitless and i'm super excited it's it would be odd to me that you're like oh well the readings are kind of similar so it's hard to know <laughs> I, would, I would think that,
1: that there's a way to do that but that's my insight. it's it's a limitation of the measures, really, that, that we can't do that now. I mean, obviously that's in our brain, right? right, right, right. <laughs> Everything so yeah. experience right. is represented somewhere in your brain activity. The the measures are of heart rate and respiration and so forth. And you can get you can get salivary cortisol, which is more right. closely related to negative stress but you can't get it from a wearable right now. Uh, Uh, And so there's not that many measures you can get from just something that's on your wrist that will tell you whether you're having a positive or negative experience. I mean, maybe in some day there will be, but right now I think it's much more in the voice and in in what your body is doing. More the the voice and visuals for you, even now. Um, I would say that they're both really important and that um, particularly facial expression is something that is with you at all times. Um, and you're not always speaking and it really depends on the situation, not that you should be recorded at all times, right? right. So that, it, it, you know, if, if, if the data exists, the facial expression can be more informative, mm-hmm. but I think most, a lot of the time, the data that you're transmitting is through the voice. And that's why oh. I think sometimes it's more interesting. Got it. Yeah.
0: Uh, so I want to go uh, just take it back to the Wisdom 2.0 conference for a second and tied into everything that we're discussing right now. Um, you know, we were talking just before we went uh, and hit record in this podcast, we were just kind of going through the lineup and just the, the the eclectic roster of amazing speakers. There's so many people on there. One of them, of course, Sam Altman, the co-founder and CEO of OpenAI, which is very exciting. And Soren, I'm curious... Just listening to some of your questions, I can tell your brain is is firing on all cylinders and you're, and you're absorbing everything you can about what's going on out there. And I would love to know uh, your process uh, internally of just like the inclusion of AI in a conversation about mindfulness. You know, what do you yeah. see as the significance Hold of having it. that as part of this conversation?
2: You know, the beautiful thing throughout a conference is you can have conversations without answers. And so, you know, love it love it there's a lot of things where i feel like we need to foster the conversation and i have no yeah. idea what the answer is but i know that the more of us putting our attention on it and the more of us saying this matters and the more of us starting companies that are have that as part of our mission and part of our orientation we will we have we have such a better chance of creating a better world with that as part of our intention and so when I bring people in, I don't necessarily expect them to have answers, but I expect that it, it fosters uh, an energy and an attention to this. So when I asked uh, Sam to be I've never met, actually, Sam in person, but when I invited him in, it was before they had launched uh, Chai TPT. <laughs> I, I knew they were working on something. I didn't know what they were working <laughs> on, um, but I knew he was interested in this domain. He's interested in mindfulness and he's also interested in, and of course, deep into AI. And, um, Jack Kornfield, who's a kind of well-known meditation teacher, um, it's going to be with him and they know each other. So there's like a, there's a commonality, I think of the two of them appreciating each other kind of worlds. And, uh, I'll be super curious how that gets, <laughs> what, what emerges from both of yeah. them kind of holding the space. And I get the sense, and I don't know, this has been true of other people. I get the sense sometimes the CEO actually has a bigger, deeper vision and they've been to other interviews at other tech conferences, and they, the tech conference is asking them more of competitive advantage, and how are you going to tackle this, and what do you, how do you compare with Google? And they don't actually talk to the person about what's really inspiring them, and what their real vision is, and what is kind of their heart's purpose for doing what they're doing. So Wisdom 2.0, we try to kind of get to that human element of, yeah. of what is the, what's the human person that's doing this? And um, so that's my hope in that conversation is that uh, Jack will present kind of his own views on if we looked at, you know, AI from a kind of a Buddhist or spiritual view or wisdom view, what, what what are the questions that we should be asking? And also to kind of hear from Sam, like, what's his ultimate vision for Chat GPT? Like, what is it? Is it? Is it? How does he see it helping humanity in, in different ways? And what's the vision for it being uh, humanity supportive? And I'm, I'm guessing he has that and maybe he's talked somewhat about that. In the past, but I'm super excited to just see what develops from that because yes. I feel like yeah, that's that's sure. where change happens. We need we need people on a mission for that's about the we. It's not about the me, right? And so, yeah. so but but it was kind of just random that it, they just happened to become. I didn't know they were launching what they were launching. I just kind of knew he was interested in, in these two wow. domains, and then all of a sudden they launched it. I was like, oh, fascinating. That that should be fun.
0: A lot of yeah. pet house, I assume, for that conversation. It's going to be a lot of yeah. eyes on that one. There's a lot of yeah. people and curious it be, about you know, that.
2: Like no? anything, it could be flat or it could be amazing. No. I just, I yeah. know that. You know, I love to put people together like that. Like you have uh, like, like one of the most well-respected Buddhist meditation teachers, and then you also have like AI kind of champion, and and the two of them like like, like it could be really the do- whole thing, or it could also be amazing. And that's kind of the spirit of wisdom too. But it was we need both. Yeah. We need actually the deep wisdom, and I know you know you working with Docker, Alan, and your values and stuff probably also had speaks to that. But like, we need the deep, deep wisdom, and we also need the savvy, incredible engineer, visionary, technology leader. One, left on their own, they can't really solve it in my view, but together, bringing both together, there's a much better chance that things can emerge. That um, That actually create the world that we want to see for our children and grandchildren and cousins and nephews and everyone else. So, um, so that's the spirit of that conversation is let's explore together the inner dimension and how might that get expressed in, in some of these new technologies.
1: Yeah, very I think cool. that there's a role for psychology in intermediating that, too. I mean, Docker is really good, as you said, Roll. at pulling up on in ancient wisdom. He's very well read yeah. in, in the literature and actually turning it into data and like, turn, like, yeah. let's make a hypothesis based on this ancient wisdom. Let's gather the data. Let's test the, these questions. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I joined Docker's lab back in like 2015 and we realized that there wasn't actually a, enough data to really train the models or, or to ask the, you know, the statistical questions. And that's what we did. So we just take, took that same approach and we basically multiplied it by a thousand wow. and then we multiplied it by a thousand again, yeah. but we have these massive mm-hmm. data sets, but the, you know, I think that intermediating between like, uh, the inner technology of ancient wisdom and AI is the need to find examples <laughs> and, <laughs> and, right. And, right. and turn the wisdom into data to train the AI. Yeah, That's really sort of what we're trying to do.
2: That's yeah. beautiful. And yeah, and that's cutting edge frontier, right? And I think sometimes people think like, if I could just get this technology out, if I could just get this out, then it gets out. It has totally different repercussions than they thought, right? They, they yeah. were focused on like, I just want to get this out. And I think what we're seeing now is people who come at it from a much more thoughtful perspective. And I love that, you know, Native Americans kind of think seven generations down the line and I love that there's more of a thoughtfulness about like, okay, this is going to come out and this can come out in a lot of different ways. Some of it we can't control whether somebody uses one of these, but we can do our very, very, very best to give it the best shot at having a positive impact. And, um, you know, I've talked to people who've started some of these major social media companies and you know, privately, they're like, boy, we just don't know that was coming, you know, like, like nobody kind of foresaw how Trump would use social media or, you know, like, they're just like trying to figure out how to like create ways for people to communicate. And, um, and the same with most, I think, great inventions, right? Like, like there's often not a lot of thought on impact and um, some of it it's out of our control, but I think we can also do a much, much better job of doing our best to create the conditions that increase the likelihood that for the most part, it's going to be positive. There's going to be things, yeah. of course, that are not positive, but for <laughs> yeah. the most part, the impact is going to be positive.
1: Yeah, totally. I uh, think cool. OpenAI is doing a great job of like putting it out there gradually, giving people a chance to experiment well, with it before it really is in its most transformative and like powerful form. And I think that that's been really cool, and, and it's, it's given people a chance to think about these questions. Yeah, you
0: know. uh, we're, we're coming into the home stretch, there, so we're going to wrap things up in a little bit, but um, uh, there was some stuff that I really wanted to get to, especially as we've been talking so much about <clears throat> the potential of, is it another device? Is it more data? Is it more of these things? And, you know, we mentioned uh, early on in the conversation, I brought up how I, I kind of loved the, the idea of your father trusting uh, the universe <laughs> and trusting the system. <laughs> and then, Soren, you've told the story uh, on another podcast I was listening to a while ago about where you've learned... You learned a lot about trust and kind of reframed what trust meant to you and you were on your walking journey uh, across the world and you were someone who had you know, over planned and packed his pack and had rations in this fridge truck and then you came across <laughs> some dudes that were just literally taking it one day at a time yeah. and just sort of trusting the energy of the universe and, and trusting yeah. that what they were putting out in some way would eventually find its way back to them because that's what they're putting in. they're just trusting of the way of the world. Yeah. Does it get trickier, okay, when it comes to all of the technology that we're allowing to permeate into every second and ounce of our lives and attention? W- when What are we trusting at that point, right? Because it's one thing to believe the universe is this massive thing that we're all a part of something much bigger yeah. than we can even understand. But this tech, for the most part, is of our own design. Yeah. So do we, do we need to be more cautious? Do we need to reevaluate what it means to trust? What, uh-huh. what does it do to that? I was listening to
2: Yuval Harari speak a while back ago, and he was he was kind of suggesting, at least from my interpretation, he was suggesting that that we it's it's uh, we can't really trust ourselves because we've been conditioned with ten bazillion you know ads and images and stuff, and so what we're what we're what's motivating us is influenced by all these different factors. So who's to say what a genuine uh, intention is, intent is? And um, I I hold kind of the orientation that when we most of us sit quietly and we connect with something deeper in ourselves, we can feel the difference between something that's conditioned by our parents, our society, our family, and something that's truly coming from inside us that's more of a, it's not a should, it's like a must, right? Like, like this is where I must go. This is where my energy wants to go. And I think that there's no way that that can ever be taken away from us, right? It's like, the sun is always shining. There might be tons of clouds. It deter it for a while, but there's, there's nothing that can kill that, that that exists in each one of us. And that the real challenge in life is to live closer and closer in touch with that. Um, and I'm a strong believer in some kind of contemplative practice every day. If we can, it doesn't have to be meditating. It doesn't have to be, it could be singing, dancing, sitting in nature or going for whatever. that kind of reminds us that we're not this isolated cog in this great, crazy universe, right? That there was this, whatever, you know, something smaller than an atom, if the story is true, and then some energetic force comes into that atom, and then all of a sudden, 100 billion stars, 100 billion galaxies, like something emerged that we are also that. We are the energy. Mm-hmm. The Big Bang didn't just happen. We're, we're remnants of the Big Bang. We're the intelligence that started that, not to get too far out. But what else would we be? Like, we are that energetic force, and we're taking these forms and we're these bodies. And so, can we tap into that as an energy source? and and kind of like that to me is i feel like it's kind of wisdom right is is trying to spend some time where we kind of limit some of the external influences and impact and stories and things coming our way we can just kind of like stop and settle and just kind of like listen to and attend to what is in our inner world that needs attention and i feel like the more that we can do that the more that our actions can be guided by uh, um it's like more of an inner direction, inner light. And we've yeah. all met people. or We've all been in that space at times. And you meet people who are harnessing that. And you're like, wow, they're supercharged. You know, like you yeah. see people, like, there's a superchargedness to having some vision and mission beyond the me. And uh, I feel like that's really our invitation. And it's so, so important. And the beautiful thing now is like maybe in the past it was kind of a nice to have. Now I feel like it's like like we're almost forced to, in order to have any kind of sense of the world and going to sleep at night and being able to pay attention like we need to understand that we're bigger than these isolated cogs cog- cog- in a yeah. system like we're we're a part of a <laughs> deeper universe in- intelligence and that meditation or connected with the woods or connected with anything that reminds us of that uh, is, is almost like a, a, a necessary medicine for our time. And I think all this interest in psychedelics and healing trauma is like part of that, like wanting to rediscover who are we beyond these names and forms and identities and all these things that we got to play with in society that maybe there's a different dimension that we can also harness. And, uh yeah. I, it's exciting, it's, but I hope that's not too far out. But that, that's actually what I, I, I feel and sense that if we can tap into that, it's no longer Soren trying to do something, or Alan trying to, any of us trying to do something. It's that's something fair. deeper than us that's moving. Yeah. You kind know of what I learned when I did this long walk across the world for a while. You know, uh, that is everywhere. <laughs> I yeah. can't, I can't access it a lot of the time, but I can sometimes, and I know it's there, and I know. When people do that, amazing things happen,
0: yeah, I um, okay. I'm going to wrap it up, I promise, but there was one last thing, and I uh, usually I end the show as Alan knows, I go, let's look ahead. Let's talk about what's coming down the road. But we already kind of did that. And there was one last thing, Soren, that I really sure. wanted to ask you because uh, your your whole mission is this coexistence of the technology mm-hmm. and the 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 wisdom and the ancient wisdom, the inner self. And a lot of the conversation from a lot of external sources is, Uh, finding a balance between the both, but they are separate. We have to balance, but we keep them separate. And I'm curious, have you in your journeys, in this journey, in your travels, come across, can you think of an instance where instead of needing to keep it separate, you actually observed uh, uh, the technology uh, opening up a door that perhaps was inaccessible for us prior, much in the same way... That to be too oversimplified, but a stool in the kitchen allows me to yeah. get to the higher shelf. Yeah. You know, yeah. was there a moment where the technology wasn't a hindrance, but it actually allowed someone to, you know, quote, be a little uh, bit taller, so to speak, and help them yeah. get to a place maybe they could. not yeah. And I'm sure that happens in multiple,
2: multiple ways. And yeah, on one level, everything comes from the earth. These technologies, these phones, these computers, it's not like it's come from some you know outside this universe. They're just they're expressions of universal earth elements right that just get put into these things and so it's the earth we're touching the earth on one level when we're holding our phone but there's a different vibrational input for me anyways when i'm holding my phone versus i'm like i'm touching a tree or holding a baby or holding it my my lover like there's there's just different it, it feels differently but they even though they're all from the earth but um one example i had so when COVID happened um uh a lot of people are just stuck in their houses and we're not quite sure what to do. And there's a teacher and a mentor, and a friend of mine named John Kabat-Zed, who's just a very well-respected mindfulness teacher. So every day at 11 a.m. for about three months, we held a free open meditation for people all across the globe. Thousands of people came from like 125 countries and we use Zoom and we meditate together every day. And some people had COVID, some people were, their parent was dying. So, I mean, all, and the whole range of things that were going on at that time. But the technology actually allowed us to remember the community that we were all a part of and actually practice, like, the technology, like, for the first 20 or 30 minutes, we'd meditate together from, like, all over the world. And there was a beautiful remembrance of our interconnectedness and our humanity and supporting each other in what was going to be like just a really hard experience and I look back at that like yeah I could have done that on my own silently kind of thinking about this world that we're all living in and all the people going through a lot of suffering but there was something really powerful about meeting with them and seeing them every day and practicing together and connecting together an amazing community that emerged from that that I um, would not have happened without technology you know and the information that's through podcasts and and things like Boy, that's that can really, really help so many people. And I think you even see like with Netflix and some of these other companies, like they're starting to, like Netflix now just had uh, my friend's video uh, called um, Mission Joy up about the Dalai Lama and Deathman Tutu, and they also did How to Change Your Mind with Michael And Like you, you see even the traditional companies like wanting to kind of get on this yeah. wave because they realize like people are really interested in the deeper journey. They're, they're yeah. like, sure, they want to be entertained, but at the end of the day, do we want to die in our deathbed going, I was entertained. <laughs> I made <missed laughs> it. I spent yeah. my life entertained. Yeah, I think so. I think like, yeah, I entertain occasionally, but like I live my life in a way that was like true to my values, true to my art. I didn't waste my heartbeats. I used my heartbeats well. Uh, and I take that breath knowing that like I did what I was here to do. And I did my best to kind of live the values that were inside and live those outside. And I know Alan, you probably met a lot of people, there's brilliant people in the world. And I talked to them and they're like, I'm brilliant. (laughs) I'm not, my brilliance isn't used in a way that I think is of service. And that's an ache and a pain. And I feel like the best we can do is try to navigate a path where our brilliance and our gifts are used for something beyond us and that has purpose. And I, Turns out that those people live happily lives, live longer lives, live more meaningful lives, like like there's benefits beyond a paycheck that that, that yeah. supports. And so, um, and technology I think can be a rich part of that.
0: What a uh beautiful and, and perfect sentiment to to close things out on. Alan, I don't want to cut you off if you had any thoughts before I wrap this up and say goodbye. But uh that was, <laughs> that was I mean,
1: he stuck. You want to talk about sticking the landing. That's, that was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. I don't want to ruin it. But... <laughs> um, well, but no, okay just to too. add, just to add, no, I, I think that um, what you said about you know the pain of of not having an impact on the world—you you have these ideas that are amazing—and th- then the, you don't see them really affecting how things work. Yeah. I think it's something that life psychologists <laughs> suffer <Yeah>. from, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> which is that they publish a lot of papers, but you don't see the impact on society. And then in linguistics, you see. The same thing but then suddenly natural language processing comes along mm-hmm. and it becomes the basis for chat gpt and other technologies and has nothing to do with linguistics yep. and now the linguists are like oh like maybe that's kind of that kind of burns right yeah. <laughs> So we spend all this time and i think psychology has the same opportunity um that linguistics maybe missed <laughs> to to build on uh the way that ai is going and uh to build the natural behavior processing technologies that we need to actually improve the well-being of society Mm -hmm. um that shouldn't really bypass psychology, um, and you know, and I'm trying to I'm trying to evangelize that within the yeah. psychology community. Yeah. But I think yeah. that that would make every a lot of people feel better about the work they're doing if they could say, well, well not only do I understand um, mental health and well being and publish on it, but I'm building something that can be incorporated into te- technology that tracks these things in order to improve them over time. Yeah, and I think that'll be yeah. really amazing for a lot. of I people. I think
2: people are realizing they can't live in silos. Like the psychologists need the Need the engineers. The engineers need the spiritual teachers. Spiritual teachers need the like social media wizards. Like, like we kind of yeah. need each other, and I think there's a beauty in that. That that yeah. working isolated mm. in some ways isn't as helpful as it is because we can only know so much. And I think if anybody yeah. leaves from this podcast, listen to this podcast. It's just like, what is your gift, and then find other people who have complementary gifts um, because working alone we just can't do what we can do when we're collaborative
0: yeah Uh, couldn't agree more Uh, typically I'm really bummed when we reach this point uh, because nothing gold can stay right but honestly this was such a great conversation and uh, Soren you've been so generous with your time thank you uh, again, massive thank you. It's been fantastic to have you on. And uh, the door to the Villains Lab is always open. Anytime we can get you in, I'd love right. to have you back. Right. We have a million more things we can talk about. You're wonderful. Thank you. So I hope you had fun with us. Did you have a good time? I really uh, learned a wonderful. lot. I was happy to share what how the world looks from my eyes. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. Uh, to everybody listening out there, a nice little reminder, Wisdom Two Point Oh Twenty Twenty Three. It's this April. going to be over in San Francisco. That's the 27th through the 29th. Uh, you head over to wisdom2summit.com for tickets and more info. That's Wisdom, W-I-S-D-O-M, the number 2, Summit, S-U-M-M-I-T.com. Uh, Alan, any day I get to hang out with you for an hour and change is a good one. Thanks for making time, man. It's good to see <laughs> Thank you again.
1: You. Likewise. Uh,
0: Awesome. And, uh, and to those listening, watching, whatevering, thank you. Most of all, as we've said multiple times today, we all have uh, limited heartbeats, right? And you gave us a little bit of yours and spent some time with us today. And I appreciate that. And that means a lot to me and the team here. Uh, and so we can't thank you guys enough for hanging out with us and listening wherever you may be in your car, your apartment, whatever, wherever you are right now. Thank you. We, we acknowledge you and we, we are appreciative of your time and being here. Uh, lastly, now more than ever, People got questions send them this way i want to so desperately convince a bunch of people here to read them and answer them so send whatever may be on your mind uh, you can email us at the feelings lab at hume.ai. ai that's t-h-e-f-e-e-l-i-n-g-s-l-a-b the little at symbol hume h-u-m-e dot a-i uh send us enough and i'll write a song for that uh, i won't just say it anymore all right uh i will move heaven and earth i'll get alan to read it and eventually in time maybe even answer it. Uh, That's gonna do it for now. Farewell from all of us at the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. And please stay safe out there.